Welcome to In The Soup, the podcast by restauranteurs for restauranteurs. I'm Christian, a former restauranteur who has set up a predictive analytics and forecasting platform. I took what I learned from my days running restaurants to build Tenzo, an app that makes running restaurants much more zen. Tenzo is about giving managers and head office actionable insights. So I thought, what better way to add to that than to talk to real restauranteurs about their journeys to hopefully help others facing the same challenges. Welcome to our third episode where I talk to Charles Owen, the Managing Director of European Pubs. Uh, we're recording this from the comfort of each other's home due to the ongoing pandemic. Uh, and Charles, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. Um, I'd love to start by asking you to tell our audience a little bit about you. I know you've got your fingers as many pies, so uh, please just give us a bit of a, a, an intro. Uh, sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. And um, yeah, Looking forward to the conversation. Um, so a li- little bit about me. Um, I, I love skiing and snowboarding. Um, and um, after starting off as a career as a management consultant, working for Accenture or Anderson Consulting as it was then, um, decided to take a little bit of a career break, um, helped by a sabbatical from that company, um, and went and did a ski season in Maribel and absolutely fell in love with it. That was in 99-2000. Um, and roll forward to now. And after having done about six ski seasons, um, set up a company called European Pubs, um, which owns and operates bars and restaurants and now a hotel um, in Maribel in the Three Valleys. So um, I, I, that takes a, a fair proportion of my time. Um, but I also have a I didn't quite kick the consulting habit completely. And I've got a small consultancy, Arrow PM, um, that uh, works mainly in international development and the combination of the public and the private sector uh, to try and solve some of the really tricky problems around the world, which is very, very different kind of um, sides of my business. I was going to say that those are two very extremely different uh, different sides. I'd love to hear a bit of bo- about both, but t- tell me how did you get into the hospitality initially? As in, it, it is quite a, um, it's a very unique industry in many ways. Uh, and I think a lot of people often, well, I know when I got into it, it I, I thought, oh, you know, how, could, how hard could it be running a restaurant? You know, you just get get a menu up there, get a few people through the door and, you know, start serving, count up the cash at the end of the day and you're done kind of thing, you know, uh, like, yeah, t- tell me a little bit about how, how that, how you got into it. How, how did that get started? Yeah. And I, and I think just to kind of re- reply to some of that, it's that impression, which normally gets shattered within about the first 30 seconds of being in a hospitality yes. business. It's um, I've, I've worked in many industries as a consultancy and, Hospitality is by far one of the toughest and the the, the ones where you have to work the longest hours, totally um, a, a lot of stress and pressure. So, so yes. Um, and it was, well, to be honest, it was, um, it was a bit random as, as most people get into hospitality. And it was off the back of working and doing a number of seasons. Um, I started organizing quite a few events out in Mirabel, um, through the bars, competitions, um, and um, it was a friend of mine at the time uh, had been working for a large company and was looking to get out and do something by himself. Um, 
and uh, he, we reckoned that with my more finance and business background, uh, plus his operational experience, um, then there was the potential of doing something and very much kind of focusing on, and I know it's a bit of a cliche, but um, making sure that the, the, the staff were the core of everything that we do and that we really looked after them, because if you do that, you've got a chance of actually providing fantastic service. Um, and we thought at the time that actually out in the out in the Alps, um, there it, that wasn't always the case and wasn't always being done. And there was an opportunity to do something a little bit a little bit different that was focused on on the staff and the community. And so, yeah, from that was born European pubs. Amazing. And and um, uh, so, so as you were just mentioning on on Arrow PM, that's that's extremely different. And uh, how are you managing your time? I mean, I, like typically a hospitality business is all consuming. It's like it's it's long hours. It's hard work. Uh, how, how do you manage to juggle both? Are you I imagine your hours must be quite, quite long. They either can, but the core of it comes down to, and I'm I'm incredibly lucky and incredibly proud of this. I have a phenomenal management team out in the Alps. Um, I'm based in the UK, um, and always my my motto has been as hire really good people, support them, and then get out of their way and let them make the decisions. And that's what we've always tried to do in the company. So um, yes, it's it's a lot of work and. Um, Juggling is difficult, especially when both of them get busy at the same time. Um, and that's that's when the long hours come in. But the, the rest of the time, I, I delegate well and I have a fantastic team out in the Alps that allow me to do this. Amazing. And um, tell us more about Arrow PM then. Like, where, like what parts of the world does that take you to? Where, where you typically, uh, what do you typically do there? Well, at the moment, um, mostly just just in my bedroom or the, the home office. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> the home office. Um, I've recently been doing a project uh, that's based down in South Africa, um, but it's working for an organisation called ARC, which is an agency of the African Union, and and so I've been spending quite a bit of time travelling around Africa with that. Cool. Um, it's a phenomenal organisation. I think it's going to become very important. Um, coming out of this crisis. It's trying to look at a way um, where um, big data and forecasting plus innovative financial models can allow individual countries to reduce the risk of um, famine from drought. Um, Because at the end of the day, if you know where all the crops are planted, if you know what the crops are, and if you um, know how much rainfall there is, then you can predict whether a harvest is likely to fail six to seven weeks before it does. And with that information, there are things that you can do that will actually mitigate some of the worst impacts of that harvest. And once, once you know the fixed data around how much crops, where the crops planted and how much, the only variable is rainfall. Um, and the global reinsurers will effectively take a bet against that. So by countries paying an amount of premium, um, they can insure themselves against a one in 10 year flood. Um, and the, the, the idea then starts to have um, implications for 
other natural disasters such as epidemics and outbreaks which might become quite relevant over mm-hmm. the next few years yes def- <laughs> definitely you could say that that's fascinating because uh, i could totally see uh, how you could come how, how all that could come together to really help countries uh, make those kind of decisions and are they working with the governments to to help advise on, on that specifically yeah Yes, ARC yeah. is an agency of the African Union. Okay. So the, the idea is that ARC works with the African um, member states, the nations, um, to work out how they can put the right forecasting and contingency plans and then secure the right financial instruments to actually be able to execute those contingency plans. So I've been working with them for the last couple of years. It's a yeah, it's 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 a fairly unique, but I think hopefully should be quite important. And it's it's all about trying to move the dial in Africa from um, um, in terms of disaster disaster risk management um, to be more proactive, to rather than wait until the the disasters have happened to see what can be done before them to avert some of the worst impacts. Totally. And, and a window of six to seven weeks, I, I imagine, gives you a lot of time to, 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 to mitigate that. So if you, if you know it's going gonna, it's gonna to fail, then you, there's a lot you can do in terms of preparing for that. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so uh, we're obviously recording still while the UK is, is under lockdown. Um, and I think you, uh, you saw it firsthand how France um, uh, reacted. And, and, and I think it would be just really interesting to hear um, how, how France decided to shut all their restaurants and how that affected you directly. Um, and I think essentially you had to end the season uh, sooner than, than than you would have normally. So yeah, tell us what would that what would that was like. Um, yeah, sure. So uh, one other little bit of background, which will which will become important. Um, w- one of the other things I I do, I started uh, an industry um, association called ESPIT, uh, Seasonal Businesses in Travel, uh, in 2017. It was kind of in response to Brexit because it was felt that there were a number of British companies in travel, tourism, hospitality that operated in the EU. Um, and it was kind of quite important for us to have a common view and to share that view um, with government, um, with, with other people. Um, so I, so I, I run this organisation, ESPIT, um, which then, as soon as the COVID crisis uh, came on, we, we switched our focus somewhat from, from Brexit to what was going on there. So we had a core group meeting, um, and this was myself and CEOs, MDs of about eight, eight or nine other kind of big travel companies on the Friday, uh, March the 13th, where we were discussing what was likely to happen. Um, because the following day, the Saturday, March 14th, um, the, all of the companies in the industry were due to take about 30,000 British skiers, holidaymakers, over to the French Alps to go skiing. So, it was wow. a, um, so we were getting in touch with our political contacts, with our lift, um, office contacts, um, to try and get the message, is, is the ski season likely to close that week? Because if it was likely to close early in the week, there was no point bringing these holidaymakers out. And all the messages we got from the French government, from the lift pass offices, basically anybody was like, no, no, there's no way we'd do that. Um, if we get, if it that happens, it will be like Austria, where you'll get a couple of days' notice. There's there's a fair chance that things will close down before the end of the season, but we'd hopefully kind of announce it on the Thursday, 
So then you could get all of the holiday makers back and their normal flights on the Saturday and then just not bring anybody else out. So that, that, was that, that would make sense, right? You think that's a sensible approach? Yeah. So that was Friday afternoon. Um, Saturday morning, 30,000 Brits um, jumped on flights or the Eurostar to come down to the French Alps to enjoy some phenomenal skiing because the snow had been amazing that year and it was just getting into the warm, lovely period, um, which is very good for our businesses. Um, and then it was announced in the afternoon that Macron would give a briefing to the whole nation. At, I think it was about seven o'clock that night. Um and so, of course, we, we watched um, and found out at that time that uh, France was going to go into lockdown um, and that bars and restaurants would be closing at midnight. It was still uncertain what would be happening to the ski resorts at that time. So, again, frantic and emergency SBIT calls to try and work out what was going on. Um, and a couple of hours later, we got uh, confirmation that uh, virtually all of the ski resorts would not open the following morning. Um, the next thing that happened for myself, um, so we, we operate establishments in three valleys. So Jack's Bar is our main one. Um, and we also run the hotel attached to that, which is the Guanjets Hotel. Um, and we had local police coming to the Guanjets Hotel and Jack's Bar saying that, as we knew, Jack's had to close at midnight that night, um, but also that uh, the hotel was now closed and the guests needed to leave first thing the next morning, which um, that's in, that's crazy. then caused a bit of consternation because um, we, uh, well, it was, we, we, we partner with a wonderful company, Hotel Plan, and, and they, um, they sell the holidays and bring the guests out. Um, and they were then frantically trying to arrange repatriation flights as the whole industry was to get the people back, where it meant getting in touch with the foreign office to try to make sure that the messages from Macron were communicated uh, correctly out to the local police, which they weren't be. And we got it verified that actually the guests could stay until we could get them a flight back to the UK. Um, so, so then we went into crisis mode. Um, and once again, um, the senior managers that I've got out in Maribel were awesome. They were in, absolutely incredible um, to, 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 to a member of staff. They quickly rallied around. They quickly got out of season. How can you sell as many burgers and pints and cocktails to right, how do we get the guests home safely? How do we make sure this is communicated well? How do we make sure that we can get all of our staff back to the UK? Because we had no idea when or if the French borders were going to close completely. And a lot of our staff, they're just temporarily out in Mirabel. Their, 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 their homes, their families are back in the UK. Um, so frantically onto the EasyJet sites and the BA sites, trying to get flights back. Um, and at that stage, I reckon that Wednesday was a good time to Tuesday night, Wednesday, we should by that stage have all of the guests home. So then we can make sure that we can get the staff home. So I booked flights for Tuesday night and Wednesday, Wednesday morning. We then started to get information that um, there might be a full lockdown in France. And there was a another ministerial uh, Macron was giving another briefing on Monday evening. So we were watching that and there was a rumour going around that he was going to shut everything at midnight. So we'd organised, there were coaches outside the staff accommodation 
while we were watching the Macron briefing God. and everybody <laughs> was packed in case he announced the lockdown at midnight and all of the staff would jump onto coaches. We'd take them to Lyon Airport and they'd sleep in Lyon Airport until they could actually fly home. Um, we, it was, it was the most unbelievable four days of my life. Um, so, and, and so he sorry. did announce, he announced it to close it, right, that night? He, um, he announced it to close, um, but it wasn't happening at midnight. It was going to be a couple of days after that. Um, and there was also um, allowed reasons why you were allowed out of the house. Um, so, but basically at that stage, we, we knew that it would be okay and that we would be able to get ourselves safe, um, our staff safely back, um, on the, um, over, over the next couple of days. Um, but yes, there were, um, and, and, and once again, um, just the managers, uh, Jimmy, Katie, Rich, just unbelievable, staying calm, staying focused on what they need to, and just incredibly proud that, um, by the end of the three days, um, all the guests that we had in our hotel were back safely. The staff um, who needed to be back in the UK were back safely. And then we could go on to the business of, right, how do we secure these businesses? Because we don't know how long they're going to be locked down. And it was only after that had all finished that we could then take a sit back and go, right, OK, what about the financial future of our firm? So, um, but that, that's, that's hospitality. You look after the guests first, then the staff. Um, and then we take a sit back and look at the strategy. And and on that point, how much has um, well, how how are your thoughts evolving on that? And how much has the French government been supportive? Um, the the French government has been I'm, I'm really supportive, incredibly incredibly good. Um, they within a few days of the lockdown. Um, we, our, our accountants actually, who again have, have been phenomenal through this, got in touch um, and they already had clarity around the furlough scheme, um, which to be honest is a scheme which already exists within France. It was called Activity Partial um, and they were already reasonably clear about that. And, and that, was, that was fantastic because that meant that not only could I um, then immediately confirm that all of the staff were going to be paid till the end of their contracts at the end of the season. Um, but then the people that stay year round with us um, knew that they were secure and we weren't going to be talking about redundancies. Um, so it it made some things a lot, lot easier. Um, there was also on the Tuesday, there were, um, we, we found out that we could um, uh, we could get back the corporation tax that we'd literally paid um, a week beforehand. Um, and that was back in our bank accounts within a very short period of time. Um, and also that week, uh, there was confirmation that the, from the one of the French business banks, if we needed loans, then they were going to be available at a very low interest rate um, and, and all the details about how we needed to apply. So to, to be honest, the the potential assistance from France and the French government um, was there even before we actually knew what we needed. Mm. That's amazing because I mean, when you think about it from the government's point of view, this is, you know, they, they, they keep on bandying this, this word around, you know, unprecedented, which, which it, it really is. And, and it, it, it's amazing because, it, you know, I can imagine they're getting 
people reaching out from all different industries, asking them, you know, like, we need assistance here, we need help with this. Um, and actually, the, the overall, the response, I think, and you're saying for France, and, and I think the UK also has been like, actually, they've done a really good job of getting of getting ahead, uh, generally. Do, how, how do you how do you feel about the UK response compared to the French? Are you, do you feel it's similar, better or worse? Um, it's it's different. They haven't been as fast. Definitely not. I I don't think they've been as um, forward looking. The I think the attitude of the French has been as much as possible to, um, which I think is the right one, to try and create a pause, to to just somehow create a pause and to recognise that this is a mm-hmm. completely unprecedented, to use the cliche. Um, and that this needs time to figure out what we do. Um, so by immediately enacting the, um, uh, the the furlough scheme over in France, by by immediately making those loans available, um, by by Macron going out and saying, "I do not want to see businesses going bankrupt. We will do everything we can." It, it's there will need to be changes, but it just allows a pause. And, and, and immediately, from my point of view, just um, I knew that I didn't have to make people redundant. And also my staff knew that they didn't need to be made redundant. And, and it was just that immediate certainty that was very different from the uh, colleagues and, and, and other people I know in the industry in the UK, where there was a, a lot, lot less certainty. Mm-mm, totally and and uh, do you uh, like i mean i i, I don't know if you, if, if, you, if you can remember it feels like such a long time ago pre-covid you know it's like it's it's only like eight weeks but uh, i i feel like it's a completely different world now and i i'm not even sure i remember how how it operated but uh, w- what did your day-to-day look like pre-covid and uh, you know and then i'd love to talk about what it looks like today like what what are you what are you focusing on today but, but tell us a little bit before covid what would your day-to-day look like um well so in terms of venues over in france um so so we've got um uh jack's bar um would start opening for coffees around about eight o'clock in the morning for the instructors and people that want a quick um a breakfast before they go out on the slopes um things would then start to get busy around about 11 30 with people coming out after lessons and we've got a big terrace um, and then it would be unbelievably busy for about the next three to four hours. Um, and we'd, we'd kind of be doing in the uh, two, three, four hundred covers over, over lunch. Um, and then at that time, um, the our capinas uh, would be starting to open, uh, the more uh, uh, Spanish cocktail tapas uh, places. Um, so so the capina over in Corcheval, so we'd get start to get busy over there. Um, I'd be kind of generally looking at Tenzo um, to see how they um, see how they'd done during the previous days, and then looking at the more online immediate systems of how things were working, um, and then go through into Apreski where we'd normally have um, a phenomenal band and a hundred people um, crowd surfing and drinking large quantities of beer and having an amazing time <laughs> uh, and going into the evening with some food in most of our most of our places um and then late, late night cocktail drinking um and my my usual days of just looking at the numbers seeing how that was going talking to the managers see, see what was going on there talking to the the admin teams just checking everything was working right um so j- just 
on, on that generally just 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 seeing what was going on and just checking everybody had the right kind of support um and then doing some of my consultancy back in the uk um mm-hmm. so yeah that was a kind of normal normal routine and then yes things changed quite, quite a bit and so how are you thinking so so there you described as uh, you know uh, busy uh, restaurants and uh, and bars where where people are are close up together um uh, clearly uh, covid changes that somehow um and like where where's your what are your thoughts at the moment what do you think the 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 new world looks like and i know it's a very hard question because no one really knows at this stage but 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 from what you've seen so far what what are your thoughts um well i think there is going to be a transition period from where we are at the moment to getting back to a new normal, let's call it like that. And and I sort of think the new normal is when there is a vaccine or a treatment that is able to be rolled out to the majority of the world's population. Now, I don't think the new normal will be exactly the same as where we are now. Um, and I, to be honest, I hope it isn't. I hope there are a number of changes that come as a result of that. So um, in this transition period where I think um, social distancing is going to become the norm and I think that is going to carry on for at least 12 months, maybe maybe longer. Um, and I'm not a scientist, so I wouldn't like to predict when, when, when the vaccines will be able to not just be created but be able to roll out. Uh, but in that, in that period, um, then I think all hospitality places are going to have to adapt um and i mean we in some of our places we've got large terraces we've got large indoor spaces um so yes you can have an amount of social distancing within them um but that's just within the venue itself one of the things that we're already realizing is that we're going to have to bring the entertainment to our clients rather than our clients always coming into our locations to be entertained and to be honest we've we've started doing that already so um we very, very, we have a quite strong and important relationship with the musicians that, that live and work out in the three routes. Some incredibly talented musicians out there. It's one of the luckiest parts of my job to be able to listen to them um, whenever, whenever I'm out in the Alps. They're incredibly talented. Um, but as soon as the season stopped, their source of income dried up just overnight. Um, not only for the for the rest of the winter season, uh, but also there's not that many weddings that they're going and singing at or summer gigs. Um, so we very quickly um, created something called the confinement sessions. So we started the, and it was, it was brilliant. It, it wasn't my idea at all. It was our Emma, our phenomenal market person, marketing person, had a chat with some of the artists and some of the, the musicians and said, right, let's do something. So kind of four or five o'clock every afternoon um, and we'll rotate it round. Uh, one of the bands or the musicians will just play from their lounge and we'll do a confinement session at a ski gig. Um, and and it, was, it, was, it was great. And I think just at the start, it was brilliant for the community of people that stayed in Maribel, but it's got significantly larger by then. So we've got people, um, people watching it on the Facebook, the Jack's Facebook page um, on a daily basis. Um, and off the back of that, that's amazing. Off the back of that, um, we we because we were the, the feeling incredibly um, sorry and wanted to do something with musicians. We set up a crowdfunding page. So 
Um, anybody that liked what they saw could donate. Um, all the money went straight to, was just split between the musicians. We, we don't take a penny of it. But also what we did is we put up some free things. So when we reopen, um, if you donated um, a, a certain amount, 10 euros, you'll get a beer when we reopen, that kind of stuff. And and it's been brilliant. It's it's allowed the creativity of musicians to carry on, but also still kind of connect with our customers and shows like we're not going away, but we know we need to think differently about who we are and how we entertain people. So it's 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 started already. We've got some interesting ideas about things we can do for next year. Um, yeah, it's. I think that's amazing, and like I, I, I mean, a to be supporting uh, these these artists, but but b also, I think you, you touch on something very interesting there, which is like communicating with with your community and 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 making sure that uh, customers and the staff and uh, people that you know the, the different stakeholders in the business are aware that you're around, you're doing things, you're communicating to them, and I, and I think that's the most important thing really that that can be done at this at this stage really is to say hey you know what everything is up a bit in the end but we're, we're trying to figure out and these are things we're already doing and and we will continue innovating as uh, as this whole as we see the crisis unfold and, and and react to it as best we can so yeah i think you know that's amazing you guys you guys Completely. are doing that one, one of the one of the other things that we did because and I, I, I know i've already had a, a separate conversation with you about this is that effectively we are in the hospitality industry what we are middlemen between our suppliers and the general public um just because we've been shut down um and it, and this is really really important to me um that when we start up again then our suppliers still need to be in business as well so doing what we can to actually put our suppliers directly in touch with consumers and using those networks and i think there's been wonderful examples of that as well so that actually when we can start back up again um we're, we're not looking at completely broken supply chains Totally. I think that's, again, you make a really, really interesting point there, because I think there is this kind of the first order of this crisis, which was really, okay, we saw restaurants had to shut down and, and, and people couldn't go to them. But the knock on effect that's having on the on the staff, but especially on the supply chain and, and uh, you know, those connections between, you know, the food manufacturers or, or the farmers and the restaurant industry, a lot, there must be a lot of tension there. Um, ha, ha, like, t tell us a bit, like, how, how have you, um, how have you communicated with them in terms of like making sure that that when you reopen that they'll be around? Like, what 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 are you uh, are you still in touch with them now? Are you trying to like uh, how have they reacted? How what's your feedback been from them? This is one of the areas that um, I'm incredibly lucky with a strong management team that I delegate down. It tends to be Jimmy, my general manager, um, but I know that um, that that, that um, deals and manages all those relationships. Um, but I know he was very quickly in touch with all of the people, and and it's it, it's quite it's quite good. It, there's there's been a very big sense of trying everybody trying to look after each other, um, uh, because uh, what one of the things that I, I've been, believed for a long time is that the world will be very different when we come out of this crisis, and I think a lot of the individual actions that get done during the crisis will have a big bearing on what type of society and world we have coming out of there. Um, 
and it's uh, so so the one area is I can't I can't give specific examples about the suppliers, but the one area we have done is actually through SBIT. Um, so we have about a hundred travel operators, hospitality businesses, um, travel companies that, that that work in the industry. Um, we've got a wonderful WhatsApp group. Um, we've been sharing a lot of information, and just a, a, a lot of people just trying to help and uh, help out take care of um, of the community as much as possible. And and it's it's been really good seeing an industry that isn't normally um, that that good, but crisis situations seem to have brought the community together um, a bit more. And, and it's it's that kind of stuff that is very heartening to see and I think will be very important to what kind of socioeconomic um, system we have coming out of here, which I think and I hope is going to be different. How, how are you, you've mentioned that a couple of times now, how, how are you hoping, what are you hoping will be different when, when we come back? Um, I'm hoping that we get a chance to be a little bit more reflective on what we're doing, particularly what we're doing to the planet and the environment. Um, I, I think it's been fantastic seeing how um, certain areas of the environment have just had a chance to to kind of flourish a little bit more. But but just actually the time, the fact that we look forward to going outside for a walk once a day in the UK, and you tend to notice. Um, actually how amazing the wildlife environment is um, and for too long we've just been um, taking that for granted so um, I, I, I also um, I've always thought it's crazy how everybody jumps on a tube or jumps on a form of transport at eight nine o'clock to get into work at nine o'clock I, I think the fact that um, it has been shown not for everybody but for a fair amount of uh, people, jobs and companies, then actually remote working, working from home can work effectively. And I, I, I would much like to see there being a bit of a balance so that we're not putting so much pressure on transport and actually using a lot of energy to mm-hmm. go into work when you don't need to. Totally. I, I think you're, you're right on the, uh, on the environment. I think people will after this and i hope in the same way as I, I i'm in the same camp as you here i think is that you know you'll remember these times where actually i'm walking down the street and you're not breathing in a full gulp of like polluted air or like and and you're you're being able to to you know i think i i think most people have seen the shots of uh, uh, la where there's no more smog and you actually see the the mountains from there or that you, you know it's just it, there's there's this or this the fact that delhiites are finally seeing blue sky after you know after decades of not of not seeing it so i do think that's going to have a fundamental impact on individual people and and you know crises are often accelerators of of trends that were already happening so you know people were already talking about hey we need to consume less energy or have more renewable energy and and that's probably going to give that more impetus because people are seeing the benefits of that yeah and i I think it's also fundamentally going to change the relationship between individuals and the government um the that there are a lot of things that have been trotted out over the last five, 10, 10, 15 years, um, I, there's no magic money tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the, the best thing that government can do is get out of the way of business and just let business do. It's like, no, it's, yeah. it's absolute rubbish. Um, f- 
for and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not moving towards a Marxist economy or anything like that. Um, but a successful capitalist society needs rules and needs the public sector. They um, without it, it it a it can't function. But also, I think there is a moral imperative on the governments to interfere is probably a negative word. But to be much clearer Adjust. about, um, well, to be much clearer about what are the objectives that they're trying to get out of an economy mm-hmm. or uh, out of a capitalist society, and I think um, what we've seen, and it's pretty much since the early eighties, is is governments abdicating in that role, and and I think that gets dangerous because, in my view, um, democracy is important. Um, governments have the authority of the people, but we want them to use that authority to actually make the world a better place. Now, um, the way you do that is that you are clearer about the rules and what the capitalist, um, what capitalism can do and can't do. And I think um, this has just shown how important it is that the government, governments all around the world can intervene and can do things. And, and that needs to continue. But that needs a different level of conversation between governments and individuals about what do we want our society to be like? And and exactly the same way that you talk about people in Delhi, I think now people have got a clear view of what the world, that you can put the world on pause. Um, then I think it will change the nature of the conversation and the demands between individuals and the governments. And and hopefully for a very, very, for a, um, for, uh, to put to to make things go in the right direction, yeah. Because I don't think we have been for a while. Totally, and and I think that the uh, I was reading an interesting article in the New York Times that was just making a point of how Republicans in the U.S. are particularly terrified about this because for the first time in the U.S., people are actually, but uh, well, the government is stepping in in a massive way, which a lot of uh, Americans would probably associate with, uh, you know, socialism or even maybe even more 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 left than that and they are and they're actually saying what well, it does work so what what have you been saying all these years so i think you're right it's going to there's going to be a fundamental shift after this uh, that people are going to realize that things are possible uh, that we've been told are don't, are not are not possible so um let's it'll be an interesting one to see how how that how that develops and i hope it's not a a step backwards when we when we come back totally agree um I'd love I'd love to get a sense of what you think uh, makes a successful uh, managing director of a su- successful F&B company. Uh, what what do you think are the traits uh, that one needs to have t- in order to be successful as an MD? Uh, resilience, um, grit. <laughs> it, it's it's yeah, staying power. It's a tough tough industry. Um, we. We, we we nearly went bust like many firms do in our first year. Um, we nearly went bust again in our fifth year. Um, yeah, we've we've now been going uh, fifteen, sixteen. So we're we're we there's we're doing something there that that's right. So I think I think resilience. I th- um, I think the other. I, I, not that I'm saying I'm a successful. It's just that through resilience, I'm still here. Um, but one of the things that's always been important to me is um, creating the conditions where a diverse team can operate effectively. Um, 
I've always thought as um, European pubs, or, or to be honest, most successful F&B businesses, it's a melding of the creative with the analytical. Um, and, and, and that's, it, 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 it's not a straightforward thing to do, um, mm-hmm. but that's, it tends to be where successful, where successful F&B businesses that, that have longevity um, seem to resign. It's it's really important to have the incredibly creative, passionate types, and we've got many of those in our company. Um, and and, um, and and combined with the longevity, uh, Jimmy, my general manager, has been working with us now for almost the entire length of the company, 14, 15 wow. years. Uh, the head chef, Tracy Bose, has been with us. Uh, oh, sorry, our exec chef, Tracy Bose, has been with us for over 10 years. Um, and so, so that, that kind of, uh, d- developing the culture where people know each other, where they can flourish, where they can have um, a lot of autonomy to to grow the way their careers want to do. So that's it comes back to, I've, I've been lucky. I hired some very good people. Hopefully they've had a chance to develop well in the company. And then I do as much as I can to kind of get out of their way and let them make the decisions um, and just try and support them as and when. So I, that's a bit of a waffly answer. I'm not sure if I'm successful, but as I say, I'm still here, and those are the things I've been doing. That, that's that's what matters. I I, I hear you. Grit and staying power. I I, I agree. Are, are are very important traits. It, it, it sounds like you, like most most uh, uh, successful entrepreneurs, has has have run into a number of big challenges. You mentioned there, you know, a couple of instances where where you nearly went bust. Like. What were some of the biggest the biggest challenges you 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 faced in those fifteen sixteen years uh, apart from obviously COVID, which is on a different scale of like a challenge? But prior to COVID, um, yeah, COVID's on a definitely different scale. Um, I think um, some of the biggest challenges and the biggest stresses have been um, legal ones as a result of operating in a different country. So Interesting. Um, we've not any longer, but one of the, the, the sites we had when Jack's Bar um, used to operate in Maribel from a different location mm-hmm. until we, we sold it two or three years ago. Um, and it was at the bottom of a um, rather large hotel um, that was three star when we bought it and then moved up to four star. Um, and as the owner of the hotel on our first weekend of operating, rather succinctly put, he walked into the bar after we'd had a rather large party and said, Charlie, we have a problem. I sell sleep. You sell parties. Incompatible. <laughs> anyway, that was 15 years <laughs> That was 15 years ago, and over the next ooh, 10 years, um, the conversations went from jovial like that to legal. Um, and, um, yeah, on, on a couple of occasions, um, it, was, it was in the hands of the courts as to whether we could op- keep operating or operating as we were. Um, now, <laughs> fortunately, um, kind of paraphrase a little bit, we won. Um, and mm-hmm. the courts kind of came down after we'd spent uh, probably about 120,000 on sound insulation inside wow. the bar. We, we mm-hmm. turned Jack's bar into a soundproof box. Um, uh, but and, and the, the courts kind of came down and said, right, you as a company have done everything that you would be expected to to minimize the noise coming out of there. Um, but it was quite stressful because when you're operating in a different country, then there are some things about the legal system that you just 
don't grow up with and you don't mm. kind of pick up, you don't watch the same TV programs. And so there's some assumptions that you make that just aren't right. Um, and so it was, you know, there were a few kind of occasions in court where was like, I have no idea how this is going to go. And that's quite stressful for not just the business and yourself, but all your staff and all those kind of things. But we, we came through it. And then finally, when the, um, uh, the court came down on our side, uh, the owner of the hotel turned around and said, OK, well, I can't close you down. So how much to buy you? Um, and so Interesting. We ended, up, we ended up eventually selling the location. Um, that's part, a good way of like <laughs> getting into that kind of transaction. Yeah, it was, it was also the same time that um, Brexit was on the horizon. And we right. realised that we were um, quite exposed to what mm -hmm. Brexit might do to the entire industry. Um, so it was a kind of it, 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 it was it was heartbreaking because it's the first place I'd had. I've had it for 15 years and it was incredibly it was very popular. Um, and at that stage, we didn't know if we could move to another location. Um, so it was it was a bit of a scary time. Um, we kind of went went dark, um, managed to retain all of our key staff, though, um, or v virtually all of our key staff. There was, there was one or two that left. Um, and then we've now reopened Jack's in a new location in the centre of Maribel. Um, and up, up until March 14th, it was going very well. I bet. And it, it just you, you, you mentioned Brexit there, and clearly that's completely come off the agenda in a way uh, with 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 covid but what are your what are your thoughts or what were your thoughts i, I guess as because normally we were leaving the european union at the end of this year we possibly still are uh, like, how are you thinking that affects your business because obviously you have a, as you said a lot of tourists and staff that are coming from the uk to france how how do you see that um <laughs> To be honest, it's still completely up in the air um, because no matter what Boris Johnson was saying about an oven ready Brexit deal, the um, we we are still operating under exactly the same rules as we were when we were in the European Union, and at the moment, nobody knows at thirty uh, first December this year what will be the rules on the other side. And that could be anything from a continuation of the rules we've got, which allow uh, myself and every other business in outbound tourism um, to recruit British people and send them over to work across the EU in bars and chalets and villas, ski instructors, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it might be a situation in which that's allowed to carry on or it might not. Um, mm -hmm. And we have no idea. Um, yep. So it's it's a it's um, a, a, again it's a little bit of a scary time. The obviously the COVID situation has meant that the negotiations around the future relationship between the UK UK and the EU have been more problematic. Um, it's never the same if you're trying to do complex negotiations over Skype. Um, and so yeah, that that is still very concerning. Um, at least we know that with the cutoff date being 31st of December, that for this coming season, anybody that is in British peace and is employed and working in France by that date will be okay until the end of the season. Um, but we're less certain as to what happens after that or what happens if we need to employ people halfway through the season after we're out in transition period. Mm. So, yeah, so it's very concerning. Yeah, and I agree. It's uh, and I, I'm not sure uh, what how the government's not even saying, hey, you know what? Like 
clearly there's there's bigger bigger problems here let's 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 delay that but uh, uh yeah that's that's one i'm sure we'll see some developments over the next few weeks um in terms of young people joining the industry like what what kind of advice would you would you be giving them um join it it's a phenomenal industry um it's a lot of fun but be prepared to work very very hard um as I said at the beginning, I and and especially if you're in the the bar trade where the deliveries start coming in at four o'clock in the morning, um, it's normally only a couple of hours after we've cleared out the last person from the bar. So it's it's an industry that's going almost twenty four hours a day. Um, but it it it's great fun. Um, make sure that you um, focus on your creativity. Um, that focus on the, the, the passion. The, the people that I find that are really successful in this industry have, have a passion, have a, a need and a desire to entertain um, to customers. And, and that's and so find ways of keeping that alive and find ways of focusing on that. Because if, if you've got that, um, all the other stuff you can learn. Um, so, yeah, but, but, but do it. It's great. It's um, I, I, I love the industry. I'm I'm very lucky that I've been proud, um, been been a part of it for a long time, and I hope to continue in it for a while. Amazing. Uh, so before we we uh, we wrap, I would like to do some quick fire questions. Uh, so oh. uh, <laughs> there's only four, uh, and so I, I, I'll just shoot and, and tell me tell me the first thing that comes uh, comes to mind. Um, so let's do this. Uh, what was your favourite restaurant or pub when you were still allowed to go out? Oh, um, I really like the Bedford in Ballam. Okay, what uh, what what reason? What uh, what do they do that's uh, that's unique? Um, phenomenal food, really friendly staff, um, and the company behind it has done some fantastic renovations of all of the places they've taken over. Um, so yeah, no, big, cool. big fan, uh, three cheers pub company, uh, big, big fans of them. I think it's fantastic. And it's, it's great local. They understand local and community and all that kind of stuff. So nice. yeah. Good. Um, favorite winter cocktail. Um, winter cocktail El Burro. Um, served from, um, uh, yeah, the Capena in Maribel. Um, made my miles if possible. <laughs> Good. Um, if you had to just go for one, uh, starter, main or dessert? Oh, main. But I love desserts. Main. I love desserts. Though. Oh, so be hard one. I know. <laughs> Same here. I, I always struggle. I mean, I would I would have to say dessert. I just I can't I can't finish a meal without a good dessert. And then final one, last meal on earth. Uh, what would it be? It's got to be a classic roast. I think classic Sunday roast. Yeah. That's that's I I I agree. A good roast. Nothing beats a good roast. Um, Charles, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I, I really enjoyed our chat uh, and uh, uh, congrats on, on, on European pubs and, um, and Arrow PM. I mean, it's, I think it's, uh, it's incredible, the, uh, the, as you showed, the, the, the grit and the resilience uh, in particular in this time uh, that you're showing. And, uh, and I'm sure there are some very bright days ahead for European pubs as once uh, the 2020-2021 season gets underway. So uh, thanks again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you want even more insights and tips, you can head over to Tenzo's blog linked in the description or follow at Tenzo Inc. on Twitter and LinkedIn and Tenzo PPL on Instagram. Hope you have a great day.